Welcome back to All Else Equal, a podcast connecting Notre Dame students with faculty and sometimes student expertise. Today's question comes from current freshman Sam Anderson. Hey, Jason Forrest, this is Sam Anderson. I'm a double major in accounting and economics with a minor in real estate. I just had a question on the before rise of GameStop and AMC and other highly shorted stocks. Um, thanks for answering the questions, and I look forward to the podcast. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Sam's question comes at just a perfect time. I know exactly who we should talk to. Forrest, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Nuggies. Yeah. So let's talk to the co-founders of Nuggies. And if you haven't heard of them, you should have. They're a weekly newsletter delivering, quote unquote, yummy bit, yummy bites about business, economics, startups, etc. Mm. I will say this sincerely. <laughs> I actually love reading this newsletter. Um, and they're not even paying us to say that. They should, though. Spencer Cole and Tommy Perro are current Notre Dame undergrads who are plugged into what's going on on Reddit, uh, Wall Street Bets, and the GameStop uh, fiasco. Let's call them up and talk about the background of what the heck's happening and the intersection of these financial institutes. Since this is retail versus institutional investor storyline or battle doesn't seem like it's going to resolve itself anytime soon, uh, just throughout the semester, we're likely to have more guests to talk specifically about various pieces of this that we want to delve deeper into. So like, what the heck is payment for order flow and what's all the fuss about it? Should we be concerned about it? Things like that. But uh, I think talking with Tommy and Spencer is going to be a great starting place for this conversation. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Spencer. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate you guys taking the time to be here. Thanks so much for having us on. I think we're, we're pretty excited too. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Yeah, we're, we're interested to hear y'all's take on uh, what's been an eventful past uh, at least, I guess, six weeks or so uh, in the stock market. So, like, let's just start there. Can you just, guys, just for the listeners, give us an overview of uh, kind of remarkable events in the stock market, and then we'll kind of take it from there. Wait, let's give them a timestamp. So, today is February 5th, and uh, yeah. GameStop is somewhere in between 50 and $7,000. That's right. Maybe. <laughs> right. Infinite somewhere dollars. There. Yeah, so basically there is a huge run-up in the stock price of GameStop, uh, largely due to uh, retail investor sentiment on the Reddit forum, Wall Street Bets. Um, and basically what happened is there's this one user um, who maybe about six months ago originally published a bull thesis based off of value fundamentals for GameStop, basically that it was underpriced and that there's a huge amount of short interest. And then he followed it and eventually realized that there is going to be a, a pretty large short squeeze where hedge funds were shorting more than 100% of all of the stocks in, in GameStop. Um, and then the 2 million strong uh, user base of, of Wall Street bets started buying GameStop to induce a short squeeze, which caused a massive run up in the price. Um, and we've since seen that come down a bit, uh, but it created a really big frenzy. A lot of people got rich, a lot of people lost some money. and. Uh, it's, it's been a fun time. Let's unpack that a bit. Yeah, I want to go back because Forrest is not in finance. So I'm not sure he <laughs> understands what, what a short is. Can you just define a short and then like the short squeeze? Sure. So a, a short, right, is is when, uh, you know, uh, an investor will borrow a share of a company, sell it, 
wait for the share price to decline and then buy it for a cheaper price and return the share. And that difference between the price that they sold the borrowed share for and the price or the price and then the price that they rebought it, uh, that's sort of the profit they make on on selling short. So it's a way to sort of bet against uh, a stock. How does the contract work? Like, is there a specif- is there a time, like I have to sell this back a month from now or I have the option to, to sell this back? Shorts at any are, point. I'm I'm pretty sure that shorts do not have a uh, time specification. So yes, I borrow a share from Spencer, um, mm-hmm. and I can sell it back to him. What? Whenever, but you pay interest on it. Oh, yep. So that's yep. there's a cost yeah. to holding. Okay. And it's also like there's an intermediary there too. So it would be more accurate to say like Spencer buys a share from his broker, which might be Robinhood, it might be TD Ameritrade. And then you would go into your, your Robinhood or TD Ameritrade account and short it from the broker. Um, and so, and when you're doing that, like you're borrowing it, just like you're borrowing money. So you'd pay interest on that. You also would have certain capital requirements, like a certain percent of the, uh, of the value of the shares that you're shorting that you need to have in your account um, just as a form of collateral uh, so that they know that you're good for it whenever you do eventually pay it back. Is that a function so one- of the share price? Yes. So you can think of it like, let's say, I don't, I'm not entirely sure like what the, the specific requirements are, but like, let's say it's 10%. So if you short a stock at $100 a share, you have to keep 10%, so $10. And let's say it goes up to $200 a share to meet that 10% margin requirement, it would be $20 now. So you need to come up with an extra $10 in your account to not get a margin call. And then if you extrapolate that across like thousands and thousands of shares that they're shorting, or if the hedge funds that's shorting them is using margin and taking out debt to actually uh, um, uh, to post the margin to begin with, and this stuff can get kind of hairy pretty quickly. And that gives some insight, right, into how this whole short squeeze happened. If if these hedge funds, um, who, who now we're talking right about what happened with GameStop, these hedge funds were shorting it at, you know, $12, $20 a share, and then it runs up to $200 a share uh, in a matter of a couple of days, that's a lot uh, of, of now additional capital requirement that they needed to make up um, in order to, to make their banks happy. And so that's, they're either going to close out their positions for a huge loss, or they have to find a lot of capital, um, you know, to sort of use as collateral on these short positions. And that's sort of what this short squeeze was. So is that why Citadel injected a bunch of capital into these two hedge funds? Or is that part of the reason? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's let's back up a bit and like define like the different players here. So uh, Citadel is a hedge fund, but they I believe were not one of the direct ones that were specifically shorting Robinhood. Um, so let's say I think the biggest one was Melvin Capital. So let's say Melvin Capital is one of the sorry the largest shorters, short sellers of GameStop. Um, so GameStop price it, price goes to the moon from like $10 to $200. Uh, they need to post their margin requirements. So they need extra cash to give to their broker. Um, they don't have that right away. So they need a capital injection from Citadel, which I think was to the order of like $2 billion, um, just so that they can continue to have that position. Because um, and, and doing so allows them to keep it open where um, they can wait for the price to go down because otherwise they'd have to buy back the shares at that current price, uh, which would cause a, a, a lot of losses for them. 
And that would be the squeeze, right? If no one is, no one's really selling their shares and that they're, you know, asking for, for, for shares that would drive up the price. Yeah. The, the whole point of the squeeze is that you're trying to um, constrict the supply of, of shares that are available to buy. One thing I'm still confused about is like, how did people on Reddit, these like quote unquote retail investors, which I'd also like kind of a better definition for like, um, how did they know that there were so many outstanding short positions on uh, GameStop? And like, I guess there's some other companies or commodities too, right? Yeah, I, I think some of that information is public and it's also like on 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 the whole, um, yeah, there's like two, three million people in Wall Street bets and they're, most of them are, are unsophisticated. Um, but the original guy who posted uh, the original um, value thesis in GameStop um, is is a pretty sophisticated investor. He's a he's a chartered financial analyst, so he does have um, some credentials and, and like knows what he's talking about. Who um, who is this guy? Roaring Kitty. Roaring Kitty. Yeah, he goes, he goes by another name. YouTube. Yeah. Wait, doesn't um, he have like a different moniker on Reddit? Reddit. Yeah. It's uh, right. this, this is not a show. Listen, yeah, pl- cover your ears. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not deep exactly. fucking value. <laughs> I'll just say it. That's who it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is, is a much more appropriate name than Roaring Kitty, uh, considering that he he maybe had the value stock play of, of all time here with, with GameStop, if you want to think about it like that. Whether or not it's actually a, a, a came to fruition as a value play or not is, is another question that we'll likely get into. Um, and I think another. So I do know a little bit of the answer to Forrest's question um, in that how do they know this? There are a lot of financial. Um, data sites will publish percent shares uh, that are shorted. And so what they're really looking at, the, these, these analysts, are percent uh, shorted versus the float, like how many are out there, uh, how many stocks could be traded, and how much of those could be traded stocks have been shorted. That information comes out, I think, bi-weekly, every two weeks. Uh, so uh, invest... Uh, Institutional investors have to uh, give that information to, I think, the SEC, and then that's published. Okay. I have a dumb question. I feel like earlier you said something like 130% of the shares were shorted. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand, like, what that means. I understand 50% or 80%, but 130% seems a little bit like a strange number. Yeah, I can, I can unpack that a bit. So if you go back to like our original example where Spencer buys a share from his broker and then you go to the uh, the same broker and, and short that, set, that share, whenever you short it, you borrow it to sell it. And so you sell it to the market. It might be to the same broker. So whoever buys it has that share at a broker and in theory could lend it out to someone else to short it again. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. So it's, it's really- And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And it's like it's interesting to note that, right? I mean, the number is 130 or 140% of shares were shorted. But if you look at it in terms of, right, I think something like 75% of GameStop shares uh, are locked up in, in passive passive funds and then by the, the GameStop board and, and the C-suite executives. So really like the short interest of tradable shares, like shares that are actually being traded, was somewhere between like 300 to 500% of that what is called float, um, which is insane. That's pretty amazing. 
And right, that's kind of the relevant number to look at. Yeah, it is at. pretty amazing. Um, okay, so to what extent? Crazy. Like, when I think about the stock market, I think about like this is a very competitive market with like a guy in a monocle. Yeah, but like lots of guys in monocles that that's have right. like lots of information bags, yeah. and like these share prices reflecting. I don't know. I think the word is like fundamentals or something like this. That's okay. right. So like, all right. To what extent does like shorting a stock distort that value when the, when it's like taken to this extreme, like distort that from fundamental valuation? And like, it so in like, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, in what sense is this like a market correction rather than a market failure? I think that's a good question. So I think, oh. One way to answer that to answer that is to think about like what value shorting does economically. Um, so if we think about financial markets as like a way um, for us to decide how to allocate capital, shorting is almost like a check on investors like going a little crazy with a stock, right? It's a way to say this thing's a little bit overvalued. Let's let's pull it back a bit. Um, the opposite side of that is that sometimes short sellers um, get pretty active and try to run a company completely into the ground just because they, they think they can do that to make money. Um, so in, in one way, this is almost like a check on the over-aggressive short selling of trying to essentially run GameStop into bankruptcy whenever there's certain people in the market who are somewhat sophisticated investors who think that there's like a, a legitimate company here that yeah has probably seen better days, but still might have a, uh, a a pretty good path forward. But there's no way we'll ever be able to know kind of like, and we're never going to know kind of this is the actual fundamental value of GameStop at any given time. And so, no, you get a sense, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's the that's that's what we talk about in terms of efficient markets, even if it's you know semi strong or whatever it might be. But we think like that over time, we'll definitely get a sense of what the fundamental value, the intrinsic value might be for, for GameStop. Do you believe that? I do. Oh yeah, I do. I think the market gets it right a lot of times. So with something like GameStop and like, that's clearly a cherry picked example, right? Like the fundamental value is not $5 probably. It's probably not $700. It's probably somewhere in between. Yeah. (laughs) But like, given like the amount of movement, whether it's from short sellers or from Reddit or whatever, Wall Street bets, like we're never going to have at any given time, like we're never going to have a really good idea what that fundamental valuation is, are we? No, I mean, it's like supply and demand equilibrium. Like we'll never get to an equilibrium, but we'll always kind of be around it, right? There's always going to be these little shortages, little surpluses and prices are going to adjust and we'll get there. In the absence of big shocks. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Okay. I All right. I kind of, I kind of agree with that. Um, Jason, do you want to take a, a quick digression into um, what fundamental value is and what efficient markets really mean? Yeah. Well, how would you define it? So Tommy was my uh, student in applied investment management and uh, he was my TA in security analysis. So I hope this is a reflection on me right now asking Tommy to teach you all the listeners about what efficient market hypothesis would say and a little bit yeah. about fundamental value. Yeah, if I uh, if I get this wrong, I'm gonna uh, maybe get my degree revoked or something like that. Well, I'll, be, I'll be fired too. This is a, this is a very clever <laughs> trick that teachers use when they don't when they get put on the spot. Like, you know what? I'm gonna let Tommy answer this because Tommy should know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Um, yeah. So whenever we talk about fundamental value, I, um, I think it's important to think about as like a share of stock as a financial asset. And that if I own a stock, I have a claim on the equity of a company, um, meaning like the difference in theory between like um, uh, their, their cash flow is less all their expenses. Um, and so the way that we would define that is we would forecast all their future cash flows into the future and then discount that at a specific relevant discount rate that resembles the expected return on the, on the stock for the company. Um, and what that looks like in practice is that analysts at different invest, um, investment firms have their own process for forecasting cash flows and for coming up with a discount rate. And we say that that is fundamental value. It's really about the cash flows and, and their present value today. And so whenever we talk about efficient markets, um, the efficient market hypothesis states that uh, prices reflect all possible information. Um, there's different ways that we could think about information. If it's all public information, then we'd say markets are, are semi-strong form efficient. If it's all information that exists, which would include things like insider information, then we say that markets strong form efficient. Um, but the idea is that having, having all public information uh, would mean that stocks should start to resemble fundamental value, at least to some degree. And I think with GameStop, right? I mean, in, especially before sort of these last four to six months, like that, that or four to six weeks, that really was the case. Like 90% of their stores were free, uh, free cash flow positive, and they had enough cash on the balance sheet to cover all of their debts. Um, and right, like, they, I mean, they were in a great financial position, despite sort of this like very easy to believe narrative that the malls are closing and everything's going to Amazon e-commerce. So, um, right, like they also had these sort of non-cash benefits of uh, 55 million people using their loyalty program and, you know, uh, tailwinds from a really strong sort of console cycle that's happening right now. So GameStop wasn't like an awful shill of a company and, and these really were good value plays. What, what we saw in the last four weeks was this sort of value uh, was compounded by uh, the founder of Chewy, the, the online uh, you know, pet goods distributor. Um, he yeah. joined the board along with uh, one of his COOs and the, his CFO. Uh, and that's when this really started to run up. And then kind of all this momentum sort of sort of built on, but underlying, right? I mean, the value's there with, with GameStop. But, you know, I don't want to make that statement, I guess, but- L Listening to you defend GameStop is like listening to Christian Coletta defend Rob Blagojevich. Come it's just on. beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, I, when, passion defense. when you look at deep fucking values in, in his fun, his like in his value thesis, I mean, I bought into it. I mean, he, he really, yeah. you know, the, the short selling came at the very end. But everything that Spencer just kind of, you know, gave, gave a quick overview of, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I think I think he was ex he was more so expecting share price go from five to like twelve dollars, right? Yep. Representing an over one hundred percent return. He was never expecting it to go from like five to you know four hundred fifty dollars, you know, at its at its peak. So I mean, his play was I think a really good one. Yeah. And I so think that's why, where the so, Wall Street so then this leads, side comes in. Yeah. that's And so now that's what I wanted to get into is like, what is the deal with this? Like explain Wall Street bets this subreddit just a little bit and, you know, some of the sentiment that's going on within it. 
Sure. So, right, the, the idea behind Wall Street bets is it's a bunch of people who are, are you know, trading stocks and, and usually they're doing these like YOLO trades, right? So YOLO stands for you only live once. This idea of like, okay, I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to take my entire retirement account and I'm going to put it all into like a meme joke stock because we think that like the CEO <laughs> has a goofy profile picture or whatever. Or, or post memes. Um, Wait, on Twitter. Or I think we should. Twitter. I think we. I think we have to say something that um, all else equal is not giving out financial advice. We are not financial advisors, um, so do not YOLO on anything uh, without consulting your your financial advisor. Go ahead. Or us. Or no, not <laughs> us. I just said not us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, right. So, like what Tommy said about right, like. Wall Street bets will find a CEO smoking pot with Joe Rogan on his podcast, right? Like CC Elon <laughs> Musk and think that's hilarious. And like, well, screw it. If I'm just going to, you know, choose a stock at random, I might as well choose this one with this goofy CEO guy. Um, and then you can sort of go back and like justify your position later. Um, and, and that's sort of what this Wall Street bets has, has been doing. Like they find a, a joke stock that has some sort of indicator of, of, you know, future growth and they just go all in and then they post, you know, screenshots of them losing $70,000 in a day or making a million dollars on, on call options. Uh, and, and so that's sort of this culture of, it's a lot of people risking a lot of money, uh, and, and on, you know, generally speaking on not very well researched positions, but with this case with like deep fucking value. And there are a lot of these other times where people on wall street bets are really qualified and they really do the research. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a good platform. So when did it change? When did the sentiment change from like, we're going to gamble and bet on these meme stocks to like, it feels like we're going to stick it to the man. Right. Is, is, am I, synthesizing that, that well? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, in all of Wall Street bets, you know, I've casually, I haven't YOLO'd my mom's house money or anything, right? But I've casually been a part of Wall Street bets for, I, I feel like three or four years now, just following it. I've never seen, like you said, I've never seen this culture shift of like, okay, we're all united to stick it to people. And I think that really compounded with um, this sort of mindset of all these people are short this stock we see that it's good um, and we just want to screw it to these market makers and, and, you know, these sort of like big guys with monocles. Um, and, and, and that's, I feel like that's really when the shift happened is, is relatively recently. Although I, I will say, you know, over the course of the past weeks, you've had a hundred billion dollars of, of GameStop uh, shares traded, which is like way more than the retail community can represent. So a lot of this trading and a lot of this running up of the stock are like big funds jumping on the jumping in on the long side to like make some money off of all this, you know, momentum and, and sort of mania around the stock. Yeah, I think like Silver Lake, um, which is a pretty reputable hedge fund came in on the long side, I think put 600 million in and like, took out like 700, 800 million. So they, they profited a, a ton off of, off of this kind of mania. So and this is the man sticking it to the other man. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really like the story of uh, the degenerates versus the suits is like kind of a fun one, but it's, I don't, I don't think it's, it's totally accurate, but what I will say is I, I think it's a reflection of like 
um, the community of like Wall Street bets. And I think a lot of the people in it who are in Reddit all day, like there's nothing better to do in a pandemic, honestly. Um, <laughs> like they get a lot of satisfaction, like talking to other people and, and posting, um, they call it loss porn of like, oh no, I lost like 50K mm. on like my <laughs> YOLO calls or whatever. And it's, it's weird that they take pride in that, but they do. Well, I mean, we, so Force and I just got done with a book club and we, I know all of our listeners had, had read the book, Angronomics, all two of you out there. And so we're, we're appreciative of that, <laughs> but it, it feels like a lot of the, the things that we read in this book, Angronomics, that talks about this fundamental anger in society, like in, in part, kind of, we saw this in, in Wall Street bets, right? People were just angry about what they perceived as blatant market manipulation. Um, there was, it seemed like there was a lot of conspiracy theories in there and tinfoil hats were coming out about how Wall Street is just sticking it to retail investors. But it, I'm getting the sense from talking to you guys that, well, I mean, there were tons of retail investors on both sides of this trying to just make money. Wait, but Wall Street is still sticking it to retail investors, right? Like, isn't Robinhood sticking it to retail investors? Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's an interesting side of things that that I that we haven't really touched on yet. Um, and it probably is important to do so. Um, right, so the idea was a couple, a couple um, days into this, um, the Robinhood stopped trading of GameStop uh, and then a couple other, uh, like, Reddit meme YOLO names. So, like, BlackBerry and AMC, which, right, I mean, pretty much are all, you hear those names and you think they're nothing uh, anymore. Uh, and, and so those were all, you know, it's not only GameStop, it was those were getting bought up too. But anyway, Robinhood stopped the trading uh, because they didn't have the capital required to service those trades. Um, and And right where I think, I don't know where I stand on this, but, but it does seem like there is a more likely, like less nefarious explanation is like, it was a business decision. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough capital to, 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 because those stocks were so volatile. Um, they didn't have enough money to sort of service those trades. Uh, and, and, but then I think, right. You had politicians on both sides. You had AOC, Ted Cruz, who were really came out against it. They, agreed. Um, they did. They agreed for, once um, in, in history, right? And, and they kind of built up this narrative of it's the big suits on Wall Street are stopping the, you know, they're stopping the retail investors and the big guys are getting to, to you know, um, the, you're, you're like, they're, you're only allowed to sell, right? On these days where Robinhood shut down trading. Um, so the stock price is declining and the big hedge funds are not losing as much money is the idea. And I think that's true. Um, and isn't there like a legitimate claim that like just Robin Hood's business model in general is sticking it to retail investors? Like that is just kind of like profiting off of like the yeah, unsophisticated yep. nature of like how these individuals, especially like are trading on the margin or trading options. Yeah. So, so Robin Hood makes most of their money through something called payment for order flow or PFOF. You'll sometimes see it abbreviated. Um, and basically like, what this means is like, so Robinhood is a broker. They don't actually facilitate trades. They kind of just take it. Um, and their partners who facilitate the trades are, are really like bigger hedge funds. So I think like 50% of it is, is Citadel, which was one of the hedge funds that, that bailed out Melvin Capital 
so they kind of show up on, on multiple sides of the story. Um, but what happens in, in payment for order flow is my understanding is that Robinhood will send the order flow to Citadel and then Citadel can basically uh, make a spread on that. So they're getting um, better prices. Uh, they, they might sell it or they might buy a stock at like $100 and sell it to you for like $100 and a cent, um, which is basically like free money for them. If you compound that across like the seven or 8 million users on Robinhood, like that's kind of a, a, a big deal. Would they say that they're just like facilitating market transactions and in doing so, like you get a cut or like, like what's the justification yeah, I mean, for that other than like stealing pennies? I mean, someone, yeah, it's just like you're like any other good in the, in the economy or, or service, like you're paying someone to do something. Um, and so it used to be that like before Robinhood, you would pay commissions to the broker. So it might be something like five, $10 a trade, uh, which like seemed reasonable, but you know, if you're a retail investor on Robinhood with like $100 in your account and you want to buy like one stock for 50 bucks, do you really want to pay 10% of that in commissions? Um, so it's almost Robinhood and getting rid of commissions opened up um, a lot of like the fat tails of, of the market that they were able to uh, to onboard there. And when you say the fat um, tails of the market, what exactly do you mean? Like risky bets or what do you mean? Both risky bets and like people without like a lot of capital. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But so the other part of this of like how Robinhood might be sticking it to the uh, to the retail investors is that their business model um, is optimized uh, by getting people to make risky trades on margin, uh, which if you do that for a while, you're eventually going to run out of money is a uh, is the pattern there. So um, like if I go to trade options on Robinhood, um, like let's say I want to trade GameStop options, like click on GameStop. It says, do you want to buy or, or trade options? I click trade options and then it gives you an option of like, do you think it's going up or down? And then you could buy calls or puts based off of that. And so it's, it's kind of like a, a level of abstraction that simplifies things almost too much uh, where you don't really understand what you're doing. And you know, you're, whenever you do that, you're essentially just taking what otherwise be like a financial asset with a, a story of creating economic value around it. And you're just turning into the gambling on outcomes that you don't really understand it just feels like a casino right it just feels like you're betting yeah, i don't know all it, the probabilities so, in roulette but i do know you know black and red and i'm just gonna put all my money on GameStop. stop yeah. the stock market is really a random walk though like it's all gambling anyway right or it's all casino anyway so that's the well, thing is i don't think it's a random walk i mean i mean statistically it's a random walk but i do think like there is Definite. I mean, people come out ahead and make money. These huge hedge funds do. Oh, that's well, how I mean, random walks the, work, right? The other, some people come out ahead and some people don't. <laughs> it's, it's well, just a point of that is like, if I buy like an index fund of the S&P 500, my expected return on that's positive. It's something seven to eight percent a year. Um, where if I like go play roulette, my expected value is like zero or negative or less than that. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, so it's it's different from a casino, like, and that's that's kind of been the message from Wall Street for a while. Like, don't try to beat the market; just buy an index fund, and like, you'll make money, and it's safe, and it's you know, I guess the downside of that is, is that it's boring. Um, but I mean, that's the reality of it: is like you can park your money in, in the market, not really think about it, and make a pretty nice return. All right, 
I think this is like something we're going to have to keep coming back to over the course of the semester as yeah. we sort of like see what happens in the market moving forward, whether it's like how regulators and politicians treat Robinhood um, and whether like, you know, Wall Street Bets is able to like continue to like fight the man. I heard the there's, man. A, there's a movie in development of this through like mm-hmm. the Wall Street Bet mods have been in development with like Netflix. So, I mean, clearly we're going to see more from this. And, you know, over the course of what the last sort of 25 minutes we've been talking, GameStop jumped 50%. Uh, (laughs) That's like the the scene in the big short where it's like, I would definitely buy Bear Stearns. I would buy all the Bear Stearns right now. And it's like, you might not want to do that, buddy. (laughs) All right. So we're going to conclude this quick round of rapid fire. Yeah, I think we should. All right, let's do it. Cool. You guys ready? Yeah. Yep. All right, so what is the very worst place on campus? A little fun basement. Yeah, it's got to be there, like Newland Science Hall, just like soul-sucking. Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a finance the name is soul-sucking. Yesterday. Yeah. I'm like, what yeah. Here? Careful how you talk about yeah. donors. Wait, wait. Oh, the, yeah, that's right. Podcast. <laughs> All Us Equal loves a Newland family. <laughs> we just hate science. We halls. just hate the science hall. <laughs> I just thought it was ironic. All right. That's it. Best thing about COVID restrictions. Um, yesterday it was really snowy, and my um, parts of my face that were not covered by a mask were cold. Uh, but the part that I had a mask on were very warm, and that was a nice silver lining. I don't think I'm ever nice. going to stop using the public bathrooms without masks on. It's spectacular. <laughs> I don't know why we weren't doing that before. <laughs> um, Wiz Khalifa or Meek Mill? Meek Mill. Meek Mills. Mills yeah, I mean, it's it, right. It's we got the fill. You know, we got the uh, the Eagles fan is Tommy. I'm the Steelers fan, so I probably should go with Wiz. Um, but it's got to be Meek. Wiz kind of fell off recently. Yeah, Meek's. All right, what about Mac Miller or the Roots? Ooh, I'm gonna uh, go Mac. I'm gonna I'm gonna go Mac too. That's tough, though. Yeah, sorry, Philip. For, for, Forrest, Forrest has a really good one for you right now. Which one? The role reversal? No, go up. Oh, the top 20 reasons why Tame Impala is overrated. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bring that one back. I, no, no, no. Let's I skip mean, that one. You got to skip that one. You, you can yeah. tell me the top 20 reasons why Tame Impala is overrated, <laughs> or we can just kind of keep moving on. It's going to be a long podcast. Yeah, I don't think you want to open that can of beans. All right, so let's do a role reversal. So, uh, Tommy, I want you to make a case for why garbage plates are better than cheesesteaks. <laughs> First, I want Tommy uh, to describe what a garbage plate is to the yeah, best of his yeah, ability. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even remember. I've heard Spencer describe the Rochester delicacy multiple times. And Just trying to remember. What would go in a garbage plate? Uh, it's like I picture like a styrofoam container that's just filled with like what? Fries and cheese and chili and stuff like that. Uh. I mean, it was a valiant effort. You got the first part down pat. So it's a styrofoam to-go container. Uh, half of it is is home fries, which are like fried potatoes. The other half is, is macaroni salad. And then on top, this is where you get to have your choice. I always go two cheeseburgers. Usually go two cheeseburgers. You have two cheeseburgers. You can have a cheeseburger and a hot dog. You can have two hot dogs. Never get two hot dogs. On top of that, you it's a, what, what's called meat sauce. And this is sort of like a Rochester thing. It's like hot sauce with sauce. like... With, with a like ground beef in it and it's called meat sauce with spices and, and all that stuff so then you get meat sauce on top of it and then it's chopped onions and mustard 
two pieces of white bread and butter on the side. Are you telling me I'm not going to make you try them at this point? I'm not going to try and make you make a claim for why that's oh, yeah. better than a cheese. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, come uh, on. All right, I'll make one claim that uh, there's a lot of variety there and variety is the spice of life. <laughs> there you go. It's good. Also, all right, it's a conversation starter. Look at us. Sauce. All right. All right, Spencer. So role <laughs> reversal for you. Uh, make a case why an undergrad sh- should pick Mendoza over the Department of Arts and Letters. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, with with Mendoza, right, you've got, I mean, the reason I was so interested in Mendoza is all these upper division finance courses. Um, really interesting stuff, you know, that Jason's teaching, like securities analysis, applied investment management. I think there's like an early stage startup funding. Uh, it just sounds like super interesting and, and right? You really get like hands-on, like in-depth knowledge. Um, I just didn't want to like take more like statistics for business and like, you know, uh, marketing management classes. Um, and like at the end of the day, you know, if we're going to use this time to dump on like (laughs) management marketing, non-finance, I'm okay with that. All right. Last, last couple questions. Forrest, better investment, Roslyn Capital or MyPillow? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, can I add a third option? David Hogg, one of the Parkland uh, survivors, is starting his own liberal pillow company. Oh, it's amazing. <gasps> oh. In response pillow to for the, the Libbies. My pillow guy. <laughs> is, there, is there anything special about the liberal pillows? Or are they just like... They're going liberal? to be union made with sustainable materials in the U.S., I saw today that my pillow made a three-hour movie on the on the Trump election, the most no. recent one. So just uh, oh, we should uh, we should do a live stream of that. We should watch it and and tweet it. <laughs> it's great on our on our my pillows. That's right. All right, last one. Um, how, I I don't think I'm saying this doggy right. Doggy coin. Doggy coin or Tesla? I have no idea if that's Doge how you Doge coin. Doge coin. Forest, come on, make me look bad. Doggy coin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, both are actually probably solid. Tesla's like probably way over value on fundamental value, uh, on a fundamental basis, but you know, they're both memes at this point. So I'm pro memes in my investment portfolio. If Elon yeah. Musk tweets about Tesla. Does the stock price go up? He tweeted it. This, he tweeted stock price is too high in my opinion. And it went up. Interesting. Yeah. Hey. So if, uh, if our listeners, all two of them want to, uh, follow you, Tommy and Spencer, you know, what, what are you guys doing? How can they, uh, how can they listen to some of the things that you're saying? Yeah. So Spencer and I actually write a newsletter together called uh, nuggies. Um, so if you're interested in subscribing, go to nuggies.substack.com and U G G I E S, uh, S U B S T A C K.com. Um, we are an aggregator of uh, content uh, about business, economics, startups, venture capital, stuff like that. Um, and we send it for free to your inbox every Thursday. So check that out if you're, uh, if you're into that. That's cool. So it's buying Notre Dame students for kind of like Notre Dame students. So exactly. I love yeah, it. So I'm a huge fan. Me too. I read it every week. I like the tweets, especially the tweets and the, the tweets music. are so good. And the music recommendation is great. Not enough Tame Impala for me, but good nonetheless. <laughs> All right, so thank you both for being here. Um, it was so much fun. We'll have you on again when uh, the the uh, Wall Street Bets movie comes out and we'll, we'll unpack that. Perfect. Can't wait. Thanks so much. Thank See you guys. You.
always fun talking with Tommy and Spencer. Uh, like we mentioned at the beginning, we'll make sure to follow up on this throughout the semester with additional student and faculty guests. Thanks again for listening to All Else Equal. And as always, if you'd like to suggest a topic or come on the podcast, hint, hint, you can email us at allelseequalpodcast at gmail.com.